Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. In The Empty House, Sherlock Holmes makes a dramatic reappearance in the surgery of his friend Dr. Watson. Presumed dead at the bottom of the Reichenbach Falls, Holmes recounts his travels in the East, including the palace at Khartoum, where General Charles Gordon was killed. It was a sorry sight, he said, a ruin, his blood still upon the staircase. The Sudan, or more properly, the Anglo-Egyptian condominium of the Sudan, lasted from 1898 to 1956 and was one of many glimpses of the exotic that appeared in the home stories. That Conan Doyle included this little vignette about Gordon reveals the place of the Sudan in the public consciousness of empire. In Imperial Culture and the Sudan, Authorship, Identity, and the British Empire, Leah Parody explores the myriad ways in which the Sudan, whose internal politics were influenced and shaped by Britain, figured in metropolitan culture. Like many locales of empire, the Sudan influenced literature, perceptions of self, framed ideas of manhood, of nation, and of Britain's place in the world. This book is a biography of an administrative cohort, a meticulous and fascinating recovery of a network of officials and civil servants whose immersion in Sudanese culture shaped how this remote and foreboding quarter of Africa found its way into letters, newspapers, magazines, images, and volumes that were eagerly consumed in London. Leah Parody is professor of history at Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania, and she joins me from Philadelphia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Charles. It's great to be here. So I'll start just by what what led you to this this project because it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating one. Well, um, it, it started as my dissertation uh, research, and the the question that I really started uh, out with was I wanted to answer why so much attention was paid to the going out in uh, imperial history and the being there in imperial history, but not a lot of attention was paid to the coming back. And so initially, the project was about what colonial administrators experienced in trying to reintegrate into British society upon their return. And then as I was uh, turning it into uh, the book, I realized that answering that question really required me to ask what these administrators themselves had thought they were getting themselves into. And that, in turn, led me to think, well, what is it that that the imperial imagination thought that the Sudan in particular, but colonial administration as a career was. And the Sudan was a particularly good place to to ask those questions because Charles Gordon had been and continues to be, quite frankly, such a central uh, figure and in the mythology of the British Empire and also in the mythology of British administration or, or the, the British in their actions out there on behalf of, you know, quote unquote, benighted people um, as the embodiments of British civilization. 
And so that was sort of the 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 journey that my my questions and answers went on, and that the Sudan ended up really being in all cases a very good uh, uh, location to focus on. So. I mean, I, I quoted from Conan Doyle in, in the intro, but I mean, the the book really shows the sort of the the density of of traffic in terms of literature. So, how does the how does the Sudan figure in metropolitan literature? Where did it? In what channels did it come in, and what sort of outlets could people read about it? Well, it was uniquely situated in British uh, domestic or the metropolitan culture because it came onto the scene as uh, an area, a region of concern to the British government and um, British military and diplomatic uh, forces abroad at the same time that mass society, mass mass literacy, um, mass communication through the explosion of both uh, more... Uh, popular, less expensive newspapers, and also more popular, less expensive uh, literature, and um, you know um, the the uh, penny books for for young boys, and the um, illustrated uh, weekly news digests, and and all of those those uh, things that were were exploding in the 1880s, in particular. And then in the midst of, of that, the emergence of all of that, comes this event uh, that is Gordon's um, uh, journey to Khartoum and then the siege of Khartoum and, of course, his death. And this particular story is really the first major public campaign engaged in by a newspaper and and something that grabs the entire imagination of the nation and also therefore kind of sets up the Sudan as this place that the average member of the British reading public feels that they've got a vested interest in. And so that sort of launches the the Sudan in the public imagination is that this convergence of new journalism, mass society, um, and then it takes off from there because because it is such a central event, it uh, ends up being perfect fodder for the adventure stories of authors like Henty and. Um, Haggard and others. And so it keeps being reiterated over and over again over the coming decades as this familiar tale that can be returned to again and again and again. So it's it's one that that uh, uh, Doyle name drops. I mean, he has Watson and Holmes discussing this. And um, I mean, the the room that you see in dramatizations of the Holmes and Watson story is actually filled with sort of imperial colonial bric-a-brac. But I mean, in terms of this one exchange, what's going on there? I mean, what's, what is this, what does the story do uh, for men, metropolitan men, men of affairs? Because Holmes mentions that he's written a dispatch for Kitchener before he goes. 
what what's going on in this exchange, as brief as it is? Yes, well, and, and it's interesting that you mention uh, Holmes's uh, rooms because included in there is, in fact, a portrait of Gordon on the on the wall as well. Um, that uh, it it occupies a, I think, a number of different um, things in that particular story because it's it, the the story is set in eighteen ninety four, and of course that's a few years after. Um, after the the events of of the siege of Khartoum, um, you know uh, it's um, you know a decade has gone has gone by, but this is the period where the um, the idea that somehow Gordon needs to be avenged, and the 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 slow campaign to convince the British government to allow Kitchener to go and they always use the term reconquer, um, which of course you know the British had never conquered it to begin with, but that to reconquer um, uh, the Sudan and and Khartoum in particular, that is actually something that's sort of years in the making to try and get the British government through the British public around, around to that way of, of thinking. And, uh, and so there's that, the fact that it's located in this story that's, that's supposed to be taking place in 94, but it is written after the successful campaign has happened because it's written in the early 1900s is already this kind of callback to see how right we were that there was this poor benighted place and now we've managed to 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 regain it again and now from the perspective of the reader of this story in 1904 1905 you can rest assured that that this place has now been returned to the fold of um of british uh, imperial oversight but but I think another part of what's going on in that um, in that exchange and and elsewhere in that story, because he talks about the various places that he was while he was pretending to be dead, uh, and all of those places are places where the great game was was afoot. <laughs> Um, that you know where where uh, Britain was trying to expand its um, you know expand its influence, which by the early 1900s was not a um, uh, was not a problematic or was not nearly as problematic as it was way back when Gladstone didn't want to send anybody to help Gordon. Uh, to begin with, right? So now we're in this kind of con- congratulatory uh, early aughts where um, it, it, it seems perfectly right that um, that Holmes would be working on behalf of the Foreign Office in Tibet, in uh, the Arabian Peninsula, in Sudan, in various places where uh, British uh, authority should be, right? And so I think that there's all of those things are going on uh, in what is a, a sort of a brief exchange, but it's it it, it really um, shows the assumptions of the period about w- where Britain should be and what Britain's influence should be. So I mean, Holmes is uh, is an amateur 
um, and going out. Uh, and there are other sort of famous examples of, of people. I'm, I'm thinking of Orwell or Eric Blair as he was then. He goes to India. Um, his, I believe Blair's father was in the civil service. But, I mean, colonial administrators emerge as a sort of a professional cadre in the early 20th century. So, I mean, how are they trained and how are they prepared for for these for these postings? Well, you hit on exactly the point is that they go from being amateurs, uh, be, from being generalists, shall we say, to to this idea of them of it being a profession that you need to be trained in. And so, prior to World War One and extending somewhat, certainly culturally, after World War One, there's this idea that if you are a gentleman and you have a good uh, liberal arts education, uh, have a, you know, preferably a first, if not, then a second uh, from one of the, um, the old universities, that really you can uh, turn yourself to any task in the empire and, and lead men and be able to oversee um, whatever circumstance you, you find yourself in. And that really uh, goes to the heart of what colonial administration was really imagined as, which was that through the embodiment, through being, through, through in, individuals being the embodiment of British civilization, that in and of itself brings about the uplift that is supposedly um, the reason for them them being in various places. But that during the war, as the there develops a, a, a shortage of men who can go off to colonial territories, and also, therefore creating a bit of a of a a gap in the the pipeline of of men going out to to the empire it creates this moment where people who are in the empire can begin to argue that there actually are specialized skills that need that that people need to have and that if there's not going to be that many administrators, then the ones that we have need to know how to do certain things. And so in the 1920s, we see a shift away from the generalist and towards men, and at this point it is still um, uh, overwhelmingly men, although ironically one of the main educators of colonial administrators was a, a woman, uh, Marjorie Parham. Uh, we see this professionalization of uh, imperial administration. And that is a bit of a culture shock. It's a culture shock both to those boys who have become men, but were reading those henty adventure stories and now imagine that they're going to go out into the empire and be Gordon, but are stuck having to spend a year at uh, of additional training at university learning about anthropology and, and things that they, they 
you know, didn't think was going to be part of their, of their, uh, of their remit. Um, and also a, a culture shock on the part of the older administrators in the empire and the higher ups in the British government who really need a lot of convincing that any of this is necessary because after all, haven't we accumulated and ruled over a vast empire with gentlemen administrators for all of these decades and why do we need to change now? So the 1920s and into the 1930s, you see this professionalization that has to really push back against the the cultural imagination of what it is to be a colonial administrator, which in turn has been reinforced by all of that literature and romance that has come in those decades before. And so when that you you've you've followed them out there uh and then as you as you mentioned earlier you're interested in the coming back and and the things that do come back is is correspondence and you probe deeply into this correspondence so you know how did the british uh in the sudan represent uh their situation their place uh to to britain's back home it's a complicated uh task that they undertake because they want to simultaneously assert that their experience out in the empire has not changed them, you know, that it does not change them over time and that they can indeed return to, you know, the, the fold, come back to, to Britain and fit right in again. And you can, you can sense this anxiety in their writing as they they try and repeatedly, almost um, compulsively connect themselves to the quotidian events of life of their friends and family back home, while also trying to bring their friends and family through their letter writing out to the Sudan with them so that they can erase the distance between these two spaces. So they, they also engage in this meticulous and again, like almost compulsive level of, of detailing their, their lives um, that you, that really when you read the vast (laughs) amount of it that, that I did, you, you can start to see almost a, a kind of a written version of a nervous tick that there is this 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 anxiety attached to the amount of of detail and assertion of of that c- continued connection between these two places but at the same time they're fighting against uh the opposite impulse which is that they are in an extraordinary place doing extraordinary things and that that they they want that to be valued, that they have expert knowledge, that they have these unique experiences, and that 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 needs you know that that needs to be acknowledged and validated because otherwise their whole life's purpose is not being acknowledged um, and validated, and and. As part of that, they're also having to fight against the preconceived notions that people back home, that their friends and family, their their co-respondents, 
have about what they're doing out there. So, so you have some family, some dynamics in the correspondence where you can see the people on both sides really engaging in a good faith effort to understand each other, to maintain those connections while also valuing the uniqueness of their experiences. But then you also see other examples where people on either side or both sides can't do any of that, that the the people at home refuse to understand the Sudan as anything more complicated than the, the sort of romance of the adventure novel. And you also see people in the Sudan, the British in the Sudan, who have no have no desire to maintain those connections because they want to see themselves as Gordon or, um, you know, some, something similar in terms of the adventure and the romance of the, of the situation. So it's a really interesting process of negotiation that you see through these correspondence uh, and, uh, and about whether each side is going to allow the other to, to, uh, have the kind of um, epistolary experience and, and relationship that they want to have. So Britain is is involved in, in the region, as you mentioned, basically from the great game to the era of, of decolonization that emerges in the 1950s and carries through the, the 1960s, at least the decolonization in, in parts of Africa and parts of the Middle East. So how does, how does the history of Britain's long involvement in the Sudan figure uh, as we move towards uh, Sudanese independence. Interestingly, because the Sudan was never uh, officially a colony, it was always ostensibly an an independent country whose upper echelons of government just happened to be occupied entirely by British people. <laughs> sort of how that was, you know, uh, maintained. Um, and so in some ways, they were able to cul- cultivate this, uh, this um, corporate identity of, of uniqueness and differentness that, that helped them. But in other ways, it uh, was detrimental. So it helped them in that the Sudan administration uh, the Sudan government was seen as an elite uh, administrative career, um, more elite than the than the various colonial office uh, branches. Um, in part, interestingly, because the Sudan government was uh, very early to the idea of training, of of having some kind of additional training. Uh, that went along with um, getting your appointment to 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 be an official, but what it also meant was that as the empire in general began to prepare for uh, more uh, self rule, uh, uh, more autonomous government, uh, that kind of shift in that direction, Sudan was actually caught. Uh, on the back foot with that. They did not really make that shift as early as other uh, colonies did. And as a result, the Sudanization process, as it was called, this moving 
um, Sudanese into more senior positions in the administration uh, ended up being a very hurried affair because when they finally uh, brought it in, uh, in some part in the late 40s and then accelerated as we get into the, the 50s, they um, uh, they imagined that they would have sort of 20 years to do this, uh, that it could be this slow process. But because the Sudan was always caught in the middle of Britain's relationship with Egypt, which was extremely complicated, and because of Egyptian um, the Egyptian revolution in the 20s and then Egyptian independence and the complicated um, ingredient of the canal, it meant that the Sudan was kind of sacrificed um, uh, as far as the British administrators were concerned uh, in order to keep Egypt happy. And so we see the Sudan as, you know, it was a country that gained its independence very early in the processes of British decolonization, but that it happened um, less for reasons related to the the kind of, I don't know, organic, if you want to call it that, progression of things um, in the Sudan, and more to do with the maturing of Sudanese uh, politicians who realized that they could pit Britain and Egypt, in in a sense, against each other, in order to obtain uh, uh, independence early. So, so the Sudan plays this kind of central role, while uh, or you know, like this role that's very complicated and is intermingled with all sorts of other things going on. Although, ironically, most I think most Britons would not really think of of Sudan early on in their list of um, British colonies to to um, uh, to list, shall we say? Well, that that leads beautifully in, into into what has to be my concluding question because we're nearly nearly out of time. But I mean that that's exactly right. I mean I'm I'm based in the UK and and uh, Britain has been having a bit of a a reckoning with its imperial past uh, in the summer of 2020, among all sorts of other things. And I imagine that most Britons don't realize uh, the extent of British involvement in the Sudan, and they probably see the Sudan as an American problem. Maybe they watch Black Hawk Down or something. Um, but how how was and how is the Sudan remembered in relation to uh, Britain's, that time when Britain's overseas domains were, were broad and extensive? Well, one of the ways that I think that uh, Britain should be remembered more in relation to what Sudan looks like today, Sudan and South Sudan, is in the uh, fact that there even is a South Sudan, because central to British policy in the, in, in the Sudan, when it was referred to as that, was um, separation of the North and the South and the governing of those two areas uh, uh, separately. And the accelerated uh, process of independence meant that they had no time. Now, whether they would have done anything anyway, who knows? But they had no time to try and correct 
the separation that they had really brought about themselves in um, in the uh, uh, differentiating North Sudan from South Sudan. So really the legacy of, I know that this is true across you know many parts of Africa, but very much so we can see the legacy of, of violence and of um, uh, the challenges that these these nation states have uh, in Sudan and, and South Sudan is being very much directly related to what uh, what the British did when they were in the Sudan. And yet those kinds of complex uh, political, um, uh, considerations, ingredients, uh, characteristics, however you want to put it, I think to this day are drowned out by the romance of Gordon and the still back to the narrative of, you know, Kitchener's, um, capture of, of at the battle of Omdurman, his, you know, recapturing of the territory. And, and so I think that Sudan really is a, is a, uh, a kind of great emblematic um, territory for this tension that you were kind of getting at between the realities of these territories in the post-imperial world and the 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 longevity, the tenacity of these romances of empire that that Britons uh, and others elsewhere in the world um, still very much love to um, to wrap themselves in. I've been speaking with Leah Parody, author of Imperial Culture and the Sudan Authorship, Identity and the British Empire. It's published in 2020 by IB Taurus, which is an imprint of Bloomsbury. Leah, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you, Charles. It's been a pleasure.